0: Okay, we were, we were halfway through the chapter. We're in Acts chapter 23. However, um, I want to read through the whole chapter with you so that we can kind of get context again. If you remember, there's a person that's a political prisoner named Paul. And we had looked at some, um, some pictures that were just to help us. To be honest, most of the pictures were pictures to prepare us for the second half, which we didn't get into. So if you were here two weeks ago when we actually went into this study, you probably went, why did we look at all those pictures when we really didn't see much of it in our text yet? Well, the good news is, I was just sort of preemptive uh, strike here. I was trying to uh, lead you into this text. So, i read what's with me. We start in verse 1. And we read this. Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest, Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. For you sit to judge me according to the law, and you do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? And Those who stood by him said, do you revile the God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people." But when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other part Pharisees, he cried out to the council, men and brethren, I'm a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the assembly was divided. For Sadducees say that there's no resurrection and no angel nor spirit. The Pharisees confess both. Now there arose then there arose a loud outcry, and the scribes and the Pharisees party arose, protested, saying, "We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel had spoken to him, let us not fight against God." Now, when that great dissension, um, now when there arose a great dissension, the commander, fearing Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and to take him by force from among them and to bring him into the barracks. But the following night, and that's where we actually left off last time, and I'm just going to do this because I don't know why, I just feel too far from you guys and for the benefit of an iPad, I suppose. And if I'm too close and you start fleeing, that's okay. Um, This is where we pick it up today, and we pick it up in verse 11. Read it with me. But the following night, Paul stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. Now it was... When it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they have killed Paul. Would you say, eat nor drink? There's more than three of you here. Eat nor drink. Beautiful. Now, now, there were more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy. And it came to the chief priests and the elders. They came to the chief priests and elders, and they said, We have bound ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing. Did you get that, that they've already started to compromise on that? Anyways, um, until we have killed Paul. Now you, therefore, together with the council, suggest that the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow so that you were going to make, as if you were going to make further inquiries concerning him. But we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So when Paul's sister's son heard of their ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions to him and he said, Take this young man. To the commander, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the commander and said, "Paul, the prisoner, called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to him. He has something to say to you." Then the commander took him by the hand, went aside privately, said, "What is it that you have to tell me?" And he said, "The Jews have agreed to ask that you bring Paul to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire more fully about him. But do not yield to them, for more than thirty of them are waiting are, are lying in wait for him." men who have bound themselves by an oath that they would neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for the promise from you. So the commander let the young man depart and commanded him, tell no one that you have revealed these things to me. And he called two of the centurions saying, prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night and provide mounts to set Paul on and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter in the following manner, Claudius Lysias to the most excellent governor, Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them, coming with the troops. I rescued him, having learned he was a Roman. And when I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before their council. I found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law and had nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains. Now when it was told to me that the Jews lie in wait for this man, I sent him immediately to you and also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him. Farewell. Then the soldiers, as they were commanded, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. The next day they left the horsemen to go on with him and returned to the barracks. And when they had come to Caesarea and had discovered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. And when the governor had read it, he asked what province he was from. And when he he understood that he was from Cilicia, he said, Well, I will hear you when your accusers have come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, I know that you have a word for each of us today. Here in this room, and I want to thank you, Lord. This room is surprisingly warm tonight. Um, This room has been colder on other nights. But I thank you for how you've taken care of us how you've given us a warm place to assemble. And in that warmth, God, we could easily, uh, the day after New Year's Day, just, just cozy into the land of Nod, or we can fellowship with you wide awake and seeking to know you and love you more. And God, I pray for that supernatural touch of your Holy Spirit upon each of us, God, that you would help us to hear, to know, to receive, to grasp everything you've intended for us to have today that we would further be lifted in our walk with you, that you would take us up a level in our walk, in our commitment, in the way that you develop the gifts you've ordained for us, the way that you present your calling to us, the way that you use us to be world changers around us, and the way you use us to be world changers among us. And God, I just pray today that you would freshly immerse me in your Holy Spirit, even as we sang. Lord, that you would freshly fill me Lord, that they would see you and that you would do through me what I cannot humanly do. Supernaturally and profoundly minister in such a way, Lord, that every one of us gets personally walloped today in your love and just consumed in your grace. That you just just cover us, Lord, torrent over us the deluge of your kindness. And in that, Lord, now by your presence, minister to us each, individually and corporately. Bring to salvation Bring to greater commitment. Bring, Lord, to greater concern what we should be concerned about. Lord, bring to greater confidence those things you've ordained in our lives, that we would know you better, that we would hear you better, that we would love you fully and surrender to you completely. So, Lord, we commit every second of this time to you now. In Jesus' name, have your way. Amen. I would say today, as I would any... Please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always have the final say. Now, uh, for the sake of kind of clarity again, can we go through a couple of those pictures, Lord? There we go. Um, There were three primary places, and I want to remind you, when we were looking at Herod the Great, when we were looking at Herod the Great, he was known again as Herod the Great not because he was a great big guy or because he was a great wonderful guy. matter of fact, he'd be the last guy on earth you would want to hug. He would be the first guy that would want to kill you. So you can get the idea. He was paranoid. He, was, he kind of got his area by intrigue, his position, and so he always assumed everybody else was trying to do it too. Now, the three primary areas, this is the middle one. And is this in the middle of the, the kind of pictures, Lauren, or is this? Yeah, we'll go back. Can we go back a couple? There we go. Remember, this was the first one, and this was the uh, port of Caesarea. Does that sound familiar to you? Those of you who were here a couple of weeks ago, hopefully this doesn't sound like new information. Yeah, he, remember he built this port out here that would hold 300 luxury liners today. That gives you an idea. Second largest port in the world at the time. Um, and, and by the way, it was the largest unnatural because the natural port, it was just so... Um, There were a couple of them up inside it and then down here as well in uh, in Ashkelon. Now, with that in mind, that was one that he had known. Brilliant how he built it, the whole thing, most of which is still now underwater. And it is an underwater park. You can dive if you have your license. So this was the first of them, was Caesarea. The second then, and go ahead, thank you, Lauren. And if you can see, again, this right here, that's all underwater. That was all the port. There was an opening, and then this is the other side of it. Okay, moving on. This is um, the second of them, of course, and that's the temple in Jerusalem. And that temple in Jerusalem, if you remember, was aggrandized from roughly 44 to 1,800 square feet to this now, which is 1.2 million square feet. Here on the corner is the Antonio Fortress where the Roman soldiers would be. For instance, that's where Paul is at the beginning of this story. Okay, moving on from that. And again, to give you an idea, this whole thing here would be the temple mount. As where you can see how little the shrine of Omar is today, give you an idea of its size and comparison. Okay. Um, okay, we can move on to the next one, um, and then you can see in between these. By the way, you have Jerusalem, you have a place in between, and you have Caesarea. The place in between is a place called Antipatris, and that's what we started with. Can we get to those pictures, Lord? Um, Thank you. And this was a city that he had built. And I remind you that this was a city, by the way, that would basically, one city, the main city street was roughly the size of five of our city streets, to give you an idea of its size. Gigantic as it was. And in the middle of this, he had this palace. This palace was several stories tall with different pools. I mean, the guy had a pool that dripped into another pool covered in gold. And the whole idea of it was is the guy was just sort of a megalomaniac. So get the idea in this that these were the three things that were considered, and at least in Herod the Great's mind, emblems of the eternal empire. I mean, and again, he thought that Rome, as much of the Romans did, was an eternal empire. No, it did last over a thousand years. That is important to note. When you tell someone you believe Jesus is going to rule and reign a thousand years, and people say that's nonsense, I'm like, how is that nonsense? It's happened before, it just happened with Rome. Well, Well, with that in mind, understand that during this time, one of the things that happens with the second law of thermodynamics, we call it entropy, is that things don't last forever. And even if you try to make monuments to represent how things do last forever, they just don't. And so all of a sudden, during the time that Paul is there, they are rebuilding um, the, the palace that is in Antipatris. So uh, that's the reason I give you those three places, again, Caesarea, which is the political capital, Jerusalem, which is the religious capital, and this place in between Antipatris is because those are the three places in our story tonight. Paul, if you remember, had been arrested. He was in the temple, temple proper, and as he was in the temple proper, he was accused of taking a Gentile beyond the place that was allowed for Gentiles to be, which, by the way, we have no record of him doing so. The people slam the doors, kick him out, he goes, they go into lockdown, and they start beating him. And if, had, they, had he not been rescued by the Romans, uh, unless God would have intervened another way, he would have been beat to death. That's kind of how that works. And yet in that... Um, understand that the, the way that the, the commander lays it out, he of course always kind of pats himself on the back, and it's not really the way it took place according to scripture, is that Paul was getting beat to death. Now, the Romans are not, the Roman soldiers are not allowed allowing something like that to happen, so they pull the guy out, and then they're just gonna, they're gonna beat him. The poor guy got beat within inches of his life, and they're gonna pull him out and beat him again for a, f- a confession. And that's classic Roman politic, is the way you get a confession is you beat it out of him. Until, But you're not allowed to do that if the guy's a Roman Roman citizen. So as they have him strapped and he's in place for a whipping, Paul pulls the Roman citizen card because he is a Roman citizen. He goes, are you allowed to do this? Well, because I'm a Roman citizen. And at that point, the commander gets a little nervous, pulls him out of the straps and tries to give him a little bit better of accommodation. As he does, Paul wants to speak to these people. And as he wants to speak to the people, remember, Paul would say to the Romans, I would wish myself almost accursed if I could actually see these people come to know Jesus. And so here's Paul's one great opportunity to preach the gospel to the people that his heart is aching for. And when he does, they listen and they listen how he testifies of Jesus' death and resurrection, confessing him as Lord, and they sit patiently through the whole thing until Paul basically says that God would want to save us as well. Gentiles, and in wanting that, the people go just ballistic, and as they just go mental on the situation, the Roman soldiers have to pull them out again, and now they don't even know what to do, and so now they're like, the Romans are like, look at, we need to figure out what in the world you're being accused of here, because clearly, what would make the Jewish people this angry? I and mean, could you imagine Paul having to turn to them and say, well, what made him so angry is I said that he would save you, and that's the idea here. And in that now, Paul has gotten beat up. He's gotten beat up. You know, he's been pulled into another one of these um, you know, times now where the Romans have now kind of put together the leaders of the, of the Jewish people to try to figure out what in the world's wrong with, with Paul. And at that, that's where Paul got smacked in the mouth here, if you remember. At the end of that, Paul has to be rescued one more time. And Paul is now stuck in the prison in the Antonio Fortress. And that was that little building beside the temple. And while they're there, that's where we pick it up now in our text and it is such a beautiful thing because this whole thing covers a very simple theme starting in verse 11 first of all can i just say look at verse 11 with me and look at it with a tender heart would you it says but the following night did you get that it doesn't say but that night now i don't know about you But if I would have gotten beaten up, if I'd have gotten beat up by by the Jewish people, the, the people that my heart is broken for on at least two occasions, and then once by the leaders, and then I have to sit down in a prison cell after all of that, I would be really ready for Jesus to show up right then. Matter of fact, I would have been ready for him to show up when they were beating me. How about you? I mean, and please understand, God knows so much better than us. So why in the world doesn't Jesus show up I mean, first of all, it is pretty amazing that Jesus does do a house call here, or in this case, a prison call. And it is amazing that he does at all. But he waits. And according to this, he waits a whole day and a half, apparently. I mean, we don't know when what time of day Paul was getting beat up. We don't know how this whole thing going to came down. But when it came down to the end, Paul's going to spend a whole day. And can I just suggest to you that there are times when the Lord really knows you're in no position to hear him. You know, you can get so caught up in whatever it is that you're doing that you can't even hear the most basic things that he would want to tell you. That's what, Now face it, think about those times, those, especially those of you who are married, but every one of us who has friends, Perfectly, that's every one of us here, that there gets that point where you get in these really weird arguments that you would never have gotten into had it not been the perfect storm. And sometimes it really is that you try to solve a problem at a time when someone else really isn't willing to let you solve their problem. And you have the very best intentions, but all of a sudden you can't understand why they're so angry at you when you're really trying to help because they're really in no position. I remember learning as a lifeguard, one of the first lessons you learn is that you never jump in on a person that actually right in the moment when they start discovering that they're drowning, because what they'll do is they'll use anything around them to keep them afloat. We've been in situations where you've actually had to really seriously, in one case I had a friend who had to knock out a guy because he was drowning his wife because their boat capsized. And and the idea of it was is that he wasn't trying to drown, her; he was just trying to stay afloat. But there gets a point after you're fighting and kicking and screaming and fighting and kicking and screaming, where you start to just, you stop. And that's the time when you rescue them, because at a time like that they'll actually listen to you. When you say, "Look at, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to pull you to shore. I need you to just lay on your back. Just lay on your back. I'm going to take care of the rest." And at that point, you can take them, you can put them over your shoulder, and you can kind of drag them in the way you're the way you're supposed to. And in that, before that point, you're in danger. Now, scripturally, there are times where we read that Jesus was saying something and we read, but what he said was hidden from them. Now, there are some that would like to say, well, look at, there is God clearly blinding the eyes of a person because he wants them in hell, which is a little strange since it's his disciples. But when he's speaking to his disciples and Jesus, for instance, says of all the things you, you know, that are kind of important to Jesus, I'm going to die I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles, betrayed by my own people, handed over to the Gentiles. They're going to scourge me. They're going to beat me. They're going to spit on me. I'm going to literally die. And then three days later, I'm going to raise again. There cannot be more important information that people need to know than that. And you know that. Every other information, any other information you have to offer is secondary to that information, especially when you attach it to this for your sins. The reason why Jesus came to earth was clothed in flesh. The reason why he was beat. The reason why he was tortured. The reason why he was spat upon and whipped and executed and hung on a cross and died was for your sins and mine too. And he rose again so they could be absolved and give you new life. Now hear me on this. He's saying this and we read, but what but that was hidden from their eyes. These words were hidden from their eyes. Interesting. The next thing we read is, is that they ask Jesus, so... Who's going to be the greatest? And you wonder why it was hidden from their eyes? They were so blinded by their own personal ambition. Jesus just said, I'm going to get beat to death. And they're like, so um, who's second in command? Would that not be the most insulting thing? Imagine if you told your friends, I'm very, very ill, and I'm very likely that I'm going to die this week. And they start asking, so who's going to get your, your collection of this? You know, who's going to get your laptop? And you think, I thought you were my friends. And that's kind of what you get here. And the reason I say that is, is that this whole thing starts, and understand God is going to give a promise, and that's what this thing hinges on, that the Lord is going to give a promise to Paul. But the Lord is going to give a promise to Paul at a time when Paul can get the promise. And I tend to think that there was a whole day that Jesus was going to wait until Paul was ready to hear that promise. What if he said it earlier? Isn't it nice that the Lord didn't hold Paul accountable for information he wasn't ready to receive? He knew when to give it. And listen, in the Gospel of John chapter 11, Jesus is told about someone that's a dear friend of his, a, a man named Lazarus. And they say, the one whom you love is sick. And we read, because Jesus loved him, He waited, because He loved them, because He was the brother of Mary and Martha. And you think, if He loved, why did He wait? Why not just run to the aid right away? But have you learned that there are times because the Lord loves you, He's waiting? Isn't that awful? Isn't that one of the worst things? The last thing I want is for the Lord to wait It's funny because that's what he tells me is I could renew my strength, I could mount up like on wings of eagles, but in order for that to happen, what do I need to do? Wait. But it isn't just wait, it's wait on. Don't miss that. Waiting on the Lord is very different from waiting for the Lord. Waiting for the Lord is you're the guy, you're already ready, but your family or your wife or your kids or whatever the case isn't ready yet and you're going to sit in the car with it running because that's you're waiting for them to get there. You already know where you're going, you already know what you're going to do and you're just waiting for them to catch up. Sometimes we do that with the Lord. We don't pray the Lord's will be done, we pray my will be done. Now get with it, Lord. Come and get, I know it's a great plan. Jump in it anytime you want to. And so I'm waiting for him. You're single and I'm like, I'm just waiting for the right man. No, no, you, and you even sometimes you even already haven't picked out. You're just waiting for the Lord to step in and magically put love dust on them or something like that, right? You're waiting for the right job, and you even haven't picked up, and you're just waiting for them to contact you. You haven't even filled out an application to put in your CV. You just know that somehow the Lord's going to magically just, right? The whole thing's going to happen. But sometimes there's, well, please understand, the Lord didn't say if you wait for me, you're really going to be strengthened. Because if let me just say, if you wait for anything, you're going to be irritated. Let's face it, the moment you wait for something, what that means is someone needs to catch up with you. How sad is that? But to wait on the Lord is an entirely different thing. There are times, for instance, where you'll be in a situation, for instance, where you can sit in the bus, and, or like I'd say, Camden Town's a classic place of this, is that that's the one place where you can get out of a train car and get into another one, because it stops that long. But let's face it, there are those times where, you know, there'll be a signal failure, there'll be something. You're on the train. You know where you're going. You're not the master of it, though. And you know that because all of a sudden you stop and you're in between stops. No, nobody's going to offer you a ginger ale as they walk through. No one's going to say, you know, we're going to open up the, the, the doors and go ahead for a walk for a few minutes until we figure this thing out. You're stuck in that train. And you're stuck in that train until it goes. And there's doesn't matter how much you want to spin, you can push the wall all you want, it ain't moving, baby, until it moves. And in that case, you have to wait on it, because you're on that seat and you're waiting. Now we've had situations where you know um, we've you know the train has hit things. Um, Praise God, I've never known it to be a person. And it, it shuts down, and you're in there for three hours. You know, and you're kind of sitting there, and I'm telling you, after about an hour, you stop making up excuses of how you're not going to witness to the person next to you. You've got too much time on your hands at this point, and it's dark. The lights go out, and you're sitting next to total strangers, and you're like, well, since we're totally in the dark here, I thought I'd share Jesus with you. You know, and then, you know, and it's, it's really, the only reason I say that is, is that when we wait on the Lord, the, the issue is we're not telling him where to go or even when to go. We're just waiting, and when you move, I'll go with you. That's the whole idea. If you're a pillar of cloud by day, if you don't move, I'm staying. And understand, the reason I say that is is that there are times where the Lord's going to display that faith by waiting, but he tells us to wait on him, not just for him. Now, the good news in this story is, is that Paul, we don't have any record, is expecting Jesus to show up. But think about how heavy this would be. You're in love with a group of people, and they have now just tried to kill you, and then they tried to kill you again, just in case you thought it was a fluke. And now Jesus shows up in verse 12. Verse verse 11, I'm sorry. It says, But now the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer. Okay, what does that mean? Well, be of good cheer means, yeah, cheer up. How would you say that? In your own cultures, do you have a way of saying that? Is there like a slang way of saying it or anything like that? Or is it just cheer up? Is that what you say? What's that? Stop whining. Okay. A little bit different of an angle, but we're kind of there on that. Stop whining. At least now that's that's probably confessional. But anyway. Um, I mean to understand the Lord's not going to tell you to cheer up unless you're not, right? It isn't like you're like singing happy songs and blowing up balloons and having a real little party, and all of a sudden the Lord goes, cheer up. Paul is bumming, and, and, and 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 let's be honest, it's a reasonable thing for him to be pretty unhappy at this moment in regards to this. This is a really rough moment, and he says, "Listen, cheer up, be of good cheer, Paul. For as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness in Rome." Now, notice the information he gives you and that the information he doesn't. He doesn't say when, he doesn't say how. He just says, this is a done deal. You're going to be in Rome. I've got that plan. Now, everything else in the rest of this chapter shows what happens when man tries to get in the way of that. Can I just say, if God's made a promise, it's going to happen. That's just the bottom line. It doesn't matter whether it's 40 or 400 or the rest of the world. If, listen, listen, listen. If God's made a promise, he's going to keep it. Now, the problem is, if you're a Christian here, more than likely you inherently know that, but you don't. We talk about the fatal cubit. And for the sake of clarity, I'll, I'll remind you, and you'll probably hear me say it a hundred more times before I die, and that is the, dis- the cubit's the distance between the tip of your elbow and the tip of your middle finger. That's a measure, usually roughly about a foot and a half or roughly about a half a yard. And, and in that, a little less than a half a meter, Now, the idea of this, we call it a fatal cubit because if you take this part, the tip of it, and put it right where your brain is, don't worry, I'm not going to smack you, it's not one of those, you'll wind up that that the lower part of it ends up right about where your heart is. And somehow it seems like our brains are saturated with information that our hearts have just not gotten. And that's the fatal cubit. It's that place that breaks down between what you think you know and where the decisions are really made. I have a friend who um, I've been sitting and uh, speaking with over the last couple of weeks, gone through some really rough times. He's kind of stepping out of the ministry that he's involved in at the moment. He's just really overwhelmed. And, and it's interesting because a couple of times I heard him say, and it, it haunts me as I hear this. He says, you know, in the simplest sense, I just didn't do the counsel that I would have given someone else under those circumstances. In other words, I knew it here, but man, with my heart made decisions, it just didn't. And when the circumstances really hit where now you have to apply what you know, you really see how much of it actually makes it here. And what I've learned is, is there are certain ways? certainly in prayer and seeking and surrender to the Lord, you'll find a lot of it starts to make its way here. But if it doesn't, God tends to jar it loose from here by the impact of your knees hitting the ground in a trial. And I've watched that happen over and over all of a sudden something really rough happens and boom, you're thrown to the ground and it gets shattered a little bit and it starts making its way and you're going, wait a minute, wait a minute. Okay, now I need those verses. I don't need those verses to out-argue somebody or to bolster my pride. I need those verses verses for comfort now. I need those verses in reality. And it's kind of like teaching somebody an easy way to fly through something and then actually kind of figuring out I have to go through the rules on this now. And understand, the reason I say that is, is that this whole story in its simplest sense, and it won't take much development, but the simplest sense is, Jesus meets Paul at a moment where he's finally able to listen, and he gives him a promise. And the promise is, you're going to make it to Rome, and when you get to Rome, you're going to testify of me there. That's my promise to you. By the end of this, we get the fact that Paul still hasn't made it to Rome. As a matter of fact, Paul won't make it to Rome until the end of the book of Acts. He will spend two years as a political prisoner in Caesarea, and then he's going to take quite a difficult route from there to Rome, including shipwrecks and lining up on Malta and all kinds of fun things, being bitten by a snake. There's all kinds of great lessons on the which, by the way, it's kind of kind that the Lord doesn't give you all that information here. I mean, listen, Please. If the Lord showed you the route to where he wanted to take you, I guarantee you most of us in this room, if not all of us, would say, is there a second option? But if the Lord actually showed you where it is he wanted to take you, we'd all volunteer. Because he is perfectly good, and he perfectly loves you, and he perfectly knows how to perfectly get you there. The problem is, is the route will never be the one we take, because the route he chooses will be one that involves sacrifice. It will involve chiseling us away. It will involve making us less who we were and making us more of who he's intended us to be. And for that to happen, friends, for that to happen, that can be a pretty rough road because that's going to be frictive. It has to be. It's going to friction away us. It's going to chisel away us. But on the other side of it, we're going to look so much better. It'd be kind of like if God only showed you all the exercises necessary for you, for you to lose the weight that you really want to lose. You would probably never volunteer. But if he showed you what you look like on the other side, you just might give it a crack. And the Lord knows that. And so the Lord, in his kindness, just says, Paul, you're going to make it to Rome. Now, let me just say something. Before I even go, now as we don't go, so like sort of, here's our presentation, now here's everybody standing up trying to get against that. Now, before we even go there, apply it for a minute. Seriously, apply it in your lives. What has God promised you? There's two aspects. First of all, what has he promised you in his word? That's non-negotiable. You don't have to say, I don't know whether I really heard that from God or not. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. That's what he told me. That's what he told you. He tells us that he will never leave us nor forsake us. Hasn't he promised us that? Does he promise that he never, listen, he never gives his Holy Spirit by measure? Do you know what that means? He doesn't give you any less or more than he does me. The issue will not be how much Holy Spirit you have, it will be how much of you he has, or how much me he has. His gifts and callings are irrevocable. Do you know what that means? It means whatever calling he's placed on your life, he's not going to change his mind and take it back. Not only has he begun a good work and he will complete it, but the callings he's given you he'll never take back. How great is that? How about you're more than a conqueror in him who loved you? Remember that? That's why we love Romans chapter 8 because it's chock full of those promises. And some of them almost sound like we really don't have to be much but in him for that to happen. The Lord has promised fantastic things for you to make you fruitful, to make your life purposeful, to remove you from every, every bondage that this world and you've already incurred. And yet in that, there are going to be times where those promises are challenged. And all you have to do is look at the circumstances and start playing odds. If you forget that it's God who made those promises, you'll start to doubt. But notice what it says. Here's our fun little story to challenge that. It says then, When it was day, verse 12. So notice God gave the promise before that. And now here's the other side of it. When it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they have killed Paul. Now understand there were a group of people that already were known as the Zealots. We're familiar with perhaps that. One of them was a follower of Jesus, if you remember. It was one of the twelve, Simon the Zealot. Traditionally, Zealots were people that were like kind of kill the system. And they were kind of guerrilla tactics. They were known as the Sicarii, at least a good portion of them. Sakari were the knife people. They jumped out and stabbed a soldier and then fled before they could actually get caught. So they were kind of known as those kind of banshee, renegades kind of thing. And there are a group of people, and by the way, if you know scripture a bit, you kind of know there are times where these kind of things actually happen, where these kind of crazy oaths take place. If you remember, for instance, when Saul was in battle, this is King Saul from the Old Testament in First Samuel. And he actually said that nobody gets to eat or drink until he's taking vengeance on all of his enemies, by the way. If you remember, but it's his son who dips his rod into the honey and says, my dad's is goofing. You know, I mean, look at how much better, how brighter my eyes are as a result of this. But it was a crazy oath. And we'll see David even does something very similar to that, by the way, when bot the, um, the fool, that Abigail's former husband, because he winds up dying, when he goes and says to David, you can't have any of my stuff. David says, you guys, we're not eating until we kill this guy. Wait till we get vengeance on this. And so the reason I say that is, is that these kind of oaths are kind of crazy, but they happen fairly regularly. That was kind of within the culture. And notice here, again in verse 12, what it is that they vowed. They vowed that two things wouldn't happen until they've killed Paul. What are they? That they wouldn't what? Eat nor drink. Now, come on, there's more than two of you. They would neither eat nor drink. Did you get that? Now notice, by the way, the Bible's telling us this, this here. It says that they bound together under an oath. So somewhere down the line, a group of these guys get together and they just, we are, what they're known for is who they hate, by the way. Do you notice that? And be careful, can I just say as a side note, that, that as, as a person that loves Jesus, that the world's just gonna categorize as religious, that you're not known more for what you hate than what you stand for. Because in the end of it all, I stand for Jesus. I stand for the gospel. I stand for his salvation, his transformation. And I want people to know that first. Now, do I stand against things? Absolutely. But if I'm only known for what I stand against, then it's like I'm just a person that likes to argue with people now with it these people have all banded together so somewhere down the line the 40 of you have gathered together and you said you know what I hate Paul I hate Paul too well I hate Paul too I wish you were dead I wish you were dead I tell you what let's do something about it we're not going to just whine stop whining okay so what are we going to do Peter says you know what I'll tell you what we'll do let's kill him yeah let's kill him that'll be great I tell you what you guys (laughs) here we go we're going to make an oath right now nobody eats or drinks nothing now, at that point, I, it just so you know where I'm at on that, I love to eat. So I'm kind of like one of those kind of things, I tell you what, let's make this oath in about two hours, and then I'm going to go to a Brazilian barbecue and eat like a can, and then, anyways. But the other, So of a sudden, okay, we're not going to eat or drink until we've killed Paul. Now, think about how cocky that is. That means you are convinced. Now, these are guys, which means, and I don't know, but I've never really met a guy that doesn't like to eat, but imagine, we're not going to eat. I mean, that's like telling Bruno, you can't watch football until you've killed Paul. I mean, you know it's, he's going to get out there. That boy's going to buy himself something. He, well, maybe. Now, and the whole reason I say that is, you've got 40 or so guys, and God makes that clear, 40. There are 40 guys that have band together and said, we're not going to eat or drink till we kill Paul. Now, God tells us, first of all, that that was the first meeting, their private meeting. Are you with me on that? Notice what it says next. Verse 13. Now, there were more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy. And God, by the way, probably aware of the fact that God picks 40 as a number for testing and proving. You know, every, whether that's the rain or Isaac or Esau, or, or when they got married and how old they were, spying out the land. Remember what it was like for Moses, how he had 40 and then he had 40 and then he had 40. 40 seems to be that. Ladies, just so you're aware of it, probably, you're pregnant for how long? 40 weeks. That just kind of give you an idea. Anyways, so it says then, verse 14, that they came to the chief priests and elders and they said, listen, listen, to, tell me if you can pick out the difference. It says... We've bound ourselves. We've bound ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing until we've killed Paul. What does that tell you? Yeah, that they've already backed off on the drinking thing. Have you noticed that? They've already said, you know what? I, apparently, it's we've already waited a little long in this, and we were getting thirsty. So, getting thirsty, we're like, we're done with this. Okay, I tell you what. We're not gonna. We're not gonna eat. We're not gonna eat. You know, and sooner or later it'll be, and, and by the way, this is what happens when you make a silly oath, is you start backing down on it, chiseling it away, right? And then soon it's gonna be, you know what, well, we're, we're not gonna eat shellfish until we've killed Paul, or we're not gonna eat pork, or we're not, well, you can't eat it anyways, right? You know, we're not gonna eat, you know, I'm not gonna eat Argentinian food until, you know, or something. I'm not gonna eat at the stalls until I, you know. And, but the thing is, it doesn't even have to be a crazy oath, we can do that same thing, by the way. You watch a girl, and she's young, and she loves the Lord, and she says, "Let me show you the list of things that that man that I'm going to marry has to look like. He has to love Jesus. He has to lead me in Jesus. He has to know the Word. He has to read the Word. He has to follow. He has to be involved in his church. And that's where it starts. And the Lord in love for you waits. Why? Because that guy isn't isn't ready yet. He isn't those things." But sooner or later, you get tired of waiting, and you start going, hmm. And you know what the next thing is? You start prioritizing. I mean, the list was just a list, but now it's like, okay, which ones are the most important? And then it gets down to, okay, he needs to, and then it gets to like, well, he needs to call himself a Christian. Call himself a Christian? Satan would call himself a Christian. And some of you are like, I know, I think I went out with him. And then it's like, okay, and then it's like, okay. And then it's like, well, you know what, okay. Inside, you're still thinking he has to be good looking, but you don't want to say that because that looks shallow on paper, but you know, it's like, I don't it's like nobody ever asked me out well, there was that one guy, yeah, but did you see him? You know, yeah, but he was everything on your list. Oh, you better put everything on your list, you know, and then after a while, it's sort of like, okay, he has to be breathing, you know, I mean that's where it gets to, right, and it's like because I could save him, I could get him to church, but he has to, i mean i can't make him breathe, you know and and the reason I say that is, is look at there's a difference between waiting on and waiting for. Do you see what I'm saying when you wait on, i'm not going to move until you say so, Lord, satisfy me until then satisfy me if it never happens. Now it's like we're going to eat nothing until we've killed Paul. Now we kind of think, woo, guess what? God's promise is being challenged. God says, I'm going to get you to Rome. Now, if these guys get their way, Paul's not going to make it to Rome except in a body bag. Verse 15, Now therefore, together with the council, suggested the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow and that as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him but we are ready to kill him before he comes near so we're going to lie in wait but god always seems to have a mole and in this case we learn a couple things we've never known before paul is a sister and paul's sister has a son which means paul is a nephew we didn't know this information before this point now we've learned it and somehow he's in it but here's my question now listen there was a time when those guys got together and they made that vow, right? And then there was a time when those guys got together and then spoke their vow to the, to the leaders. Are you with me? Here's my question, deductive reasoning people, critical thinkers. Where did this boy hear it? Listen to what he says. Okay. So it says, So this, so this Paul's sister's son heard of their ambush. He went out and entered the barracks and told Paul, Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, "Take this young man to the commander, for he has something to tell him." So he took him and brought him to the commander and said, "Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked called him uh, called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you." The commander took him by the hand aside privately, said, "What is it you have to tell me?" And he said, "The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire more fully about him." But do not yield to them for more than forty of them lie in wait for him, men who have bound themselves by an oath that they would neither eat nor drink until they have killed him, and now they 're ready, waiting for their promise, waiting for the promise from you. Did you get it? Where did the nephew hear this information at the first meeting? Why eat nor drink did you get that little c now you 're thinking it too because here he was somehow he was part, now imagine. What do you do when 40 guys are vowing to kill Paul and you're in a room with that? Do you ever think about that? Do you just pretend? Yeah! yeah, yeah or do you just kind of bow out quietly? Do you just hide behind a curtain? What do you do? But so, yeah, I tell you what you do, you run and you go tell Paul, apparently, is what's happening. So, but you know what? Isn't it great that God had it right from the beginning, had him learn from the beginning? Because I kind of get the idea that that's how long it took for this kid to get there. And so God wanted to make sure that he got there in time. So with that in mind, so what happens, he says, now look at, please don't do this to the commander. Please don't do this. Because if they do this, they're going to kill him. So the commander let the young man depart and he says, tell no one that you've revealed these things to me. Now, remember the last time, interestingly enough, the last time that Paul was in a meeting, remember half of them said, maybe he's innocent. Maybe an angel or spirit has, has told him this stuff. So it doesn't take much. So we call, now notice how Big the protection is that Paul has given. It says here, verse twenty three, that he called two centurions, prepare for me two hundred soldiers. Why two centurions? A centurion's in charge of a hundred soldiers. Thus. Prepare for me two hundred soldiers, seventy horsemen, and two hundred spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Now my question is, how many soldiers is that? How many? What's that? How many soldiers? We have 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen. How many in total on the army are going? This should be simple math, right? Thank you. 470 and the centurions, right? So at least 470 guys armed for battle are taking one guy out from Jerusalem. Are you with me on that? I was just checking to see if you're alive and I think some of you are in a coma. All right, now follow me on this. They're going to have to travel. Now remember, they're in Jerusalem and they're going to have to travel through Sakari Valley. That's the valley where all of those like guerrilla tactic guys are. They're going to have to go through that area for a 16-hour trip because that's how fast a man can walk. Foot soldiers have to walk. It is, they're not called bike soldiers or motorcycle soldiers or even razor soldiers. They have to walk. They're foot soldiers. And the average soldier, by the way, the average person walks three miles an hour at a fairly quick pace. So you start doing the, the sort of the mileage on all of this, 75 miles to get in there, suddenly you realize it's 16 hours of travel. Now think about what that would be like today. I actually went to a couple of the train stations and I asked, tell me where 16 hours of travel would be. Where would you wind up? Because I was kind of curious if we were to send a guy 16 hours away from here. And when I went there, I went, hmm... You know where that would take us? That would take us somewhere by Poland or the border of Belarus. I'll give you an idea, and I think that that 's awesome and The reason is imagine if you, you know you had banded together and you want to kill someone that God already has a promise on, and as you wanted to kill that person you 're in this church or wherever and you're kind of waiting for him and you know and you're just going you know what? i just can't wait we're gonna he's gonna go from camden and he's gonna go to Hampstead, and you just tell him get to get to or get to get to you know, park and we'll meet you a giraffe but don't worry he won't even make it there we'll kill him in the way and so you're all standing here waiting and you don't even realize the fact that he's gonna wind up in belarus which is a little far out of the way for you and remember you guys are all not going to eat right So like the first day, now which one of you thinks, oh man, Belarus, oh come on. They leave the third hour of the night, night starts for Roman at 6 p.m., so that's 9 p.m. they leave. Now it tells us this, notice the next verse. So it provides mounts to set Paul on, so Paul is actually going to go as a prisoner, he's not going to go like, you know, first class, and bring him safely to Felix the governor. By the way, was the governor at that time of Judea? Same by the way, he replaced a handful of other people would, in between, but he replaced um, Pontius Pilate, for instance, who was from 26 to 36 A.D. So this guy now is because we're now in the, the early 50s, late 49. So provide mount, so it says he wrote a letter, and so we get it. You know, I mean, can you imagine? This is like the capital. I mean, imagine you going up. This guy shows up at the Old Bailey without a note. That's kind of the idea. And so they're going to make sure that there's a reason for it. So he sends the note, and by the way, it says, and and notice he kind of makes himself look good. Oh, this poor guy was getting beaten. I knew he was a Roman, so I rescued him. And then we found out that really, nobody really had a legitimate charge for him, but these guys were going to kill him, so I saved him. And that's kind of the way, you you know, that's kind of the way of man, right? And so with that, the end of it all, it says that they're going to wait. Now, where do they have him? Now, notice in between, by the way, it says that before, in the way, they stopped at Antipatris, and they'll spend a night there, and then ultimately they'll make their way to Caesarea. So those three places that Herod had built, Paul's going to spend at every one of those. Interesting as it is. When he goes to Antipatris, remember the place that testifies of the eternal kingdom? The whole thing's being renovated. So Paul gets to stay in a palace for a night on his way over to Caesarea. How nice is that? Now he makes his way to Caesarea. There he is at Caesarea, that artificial port that Herod had made. And now this particular governor, Felix. By the way, Felix, does anyone know what Felix means? Okay, well, let me just say this. The guy that replaces him is even more interesting. I'll let you discover that. The guy that replaces him is a guy named Porcius Festus. Does anyone know what Porcius Festus means? Anyone want to guess what Festus means? Festus means happy. Porcius. Portius. Anyone want to guess what that means? Pig. Like pork. Porteous. His name means happy pig. That's the idea. And that's the guy that will replace Felix before this point. Now and understand, here's where we're at with it. Felix was a guy that they kind of questioned his motives on a couple of the things that happened because of well, part of it is because of his relationship with his sister. But but in all of that, they're bringing him there because nobody knows what to do with him. Now, how would you feel if you were Paul? Now, put yourself in his shoes. Nobody knows. Listen, listen, listen. Nobody knows what the heck to do with you. Nobody. They don't know, you know, like, because they, they don't get the fact that people hate you because you really haven't done anything to be hated. But on the other side of it, they can't disagree with those people and they don't even know why they don't disagree with those people and so there are people that are like i just hate that person they're so happy strange that's that's who believes you know how do you go with that well this person he's got such faith and they just believe and they just they pray for me oh that makes me so angry that they pray for me they're like what but they can't even go you're an idiot for saying that but they don't even know and the reason I say that is, is even the government doesn't know what the heck to do. Now listen, the difference between this government and the government we sit under here is, here's the strangest part, is the government we sit under here is supposed to have an official religion and it's supposed to be Christianity. Isn't that odd? Because you would think then that they would do whatever was necessary to help in any way, you know, elevate, propagate, bolster the movement and to, to encourage Christians to be out doing what God calls Christians to do. Instead of saying, well, I think that that's probably going to be illegal. This one, at least you knew that the government wasn't godly. As a matter of fact, we're at Claudius, and we're working our way to Nero. So you kind of get the idea the government was really, really corrupt and pretty nasty. But just the same, Paul's in shackles. He was going to get killed, but I'm going to remind you, Paul is Paul aware of that plot? You, you tell me, was Paul aware of the plot? No. Who sent the young boy to the commander? Paul did. Why did he send the young boy to the commander? Because Paul was told of the plot. I know it's easy to miss. Paul's aware that there are people that want to kill him. Now imagine, 470, 472 guys are on their way for one guy that's already tied up. And they're like looking because they're going through the valley where everyone wants to kill them, and they're going through the valley. And you, the spearmen are all ready. They're kind of got their they're in position. They're ready to chuck this at anything. And I, I pity the, you know, the hyena or the whatever that kind of jumps out in the middle of all of this. I have a friend who works in reserve in, in the Israeli army he's much older now but he's a he's in essence we praise himself as if he were a commander who really knows <laughs> I, I wouldn't dare ask him but but in that he was telling a story about the time where the um when the tide comes in and out at the dead sea there are times where this, the the tide goes out enough where there's almost basically a land bridge in between jordan and israel uh, and so when that happens, they're always on real big alert because to make sure that people aren't coming over and blowing themselves up or shooting at people and that kind of thing. And so he was on reserves that particular night. He's an older guy and he's, he's from New York, actually. So he kind of talks like this, you know, let me tell you what, right? It's open. And, and he's telling us this story about how, you know, they, they see these eyes as they kind of like kind of flashes and they see the reflection from two sets of eyes as they see the reflection from two sets of eyes, they kind of, okay, we got it. And they're, they're telling each other, we've got something that looks like someone that's coming, perpetrating on their way through this, this landmass. So these guys are now, they kind of get out and they're all freaked out about the situation and they throw themselves down on the ground and they're in what's called a star formation, which sounds a little bit more like something in, I don't know, like you know, synchronized swimming. But the idea is they're, they're all laying out and their guns are pointed all at that landmass and their heels are at each other. And the idea is they communicate by clicking their heels with each other, is the idea. I don't know what one click means, but who knows. But in all of that, they're there, and they're totally ready, and they're ready to shoot, and they're ready to shoot, and they're ready to shoot, and they're waiting. And it's like, they're just, man, can you imagine? You were like, it doesn't matter how tough you are, you're sweating. You're thinking this could be it because the guy could just lob a grenade and every one of you, you're going to go see the Lord. So, you know, you're standing there like this and this guy does know the Lord. And, he's, you know, they're standing there like this and all of a sudden it's like they're so ready to fire. And all of a sudden he kind of steps into the light and it's two hyenas. That's, And so the whole thing, these guys were all out there panicking and sweating in their trousers because of two hyenas. And the only reason I say that is is because when you know someone's trying to kill you, it's really... It, it, well it changes your evening <laughs> let's just put it that way and now you've got 472 soldiers in theory 470 soldiers that have made their way halfway there they drop off the 75 you know they kind of split now send him the rest of the way because he's now past that dangerous area and Paul's made his way and understand he's looking at a total stranger he's shown up at Felix he's the governor of the area and he has this letter he has to read and the letter basically says hey I rescued this guy I don't know what to do with him hopefully you can figure it out and he asks an interesting question. We're near the end of this. It says now, verse 34, And when the governor had read it, he asked what providence he was from. And when he understood that he was from Cilicia, he said, Well, I'll hear when your accusers have also come. And he commanded them to be put then in Herod's praetorium. And he'll be there, by the way, for five days before the trial that will happen next. Now, please hear me. There are two different places that, two different ways that you can be tried for something. And by the way, that happens in a lot of countries where you're from, and where the crime committed. That was the point. And so here's the issue, is that you can try the guy in Cilicia, which, by the way, is the kind of lip of Greece. I'm sorry, the lip of Turkey. Or you could try him down in Judea. You could try him the guy that would be in charge of that or the guy that was in charge of Judea because that's where this whole thing happened. Well, he's the guy that's in charge of Judea, and he really wants to kind of put this off on someone else, but he's kind of stuck with it now because he really can't do much because... Because he's a Roman citizen, he kind of has to try him now in the area. So he doesn't know what to do. Now here's the whole point of all of this. Is that now at this point, Paul's a political prisoner. The guy that's in charge that can have him executed can't have him executed because he has no legal charge against him. The Jewish people can't have him killed because he's not in a position where they can kill him now. And the whole purpose behind all of this is that God's got more work to do with this guy and he's not going home yet. And in the end of it all, that's the same with every one of you. Now look it, if you really think that the best, please hear me, if you really think that the best work God ever has for you is what he's already done, why hasn't he taken you home? I mean, just because God has done something really cool in your life, just because you think God may have done something cool in your life, does not mean that God is not about to roll up his sleeves and do the best work he's ever done. And I really genuinely believe that. And by the way, that's not just with us as people. That's also this country. I mean, there are times when we can kind of look back at the glory days and say, look at what happened and how we were sending out evangelists and all these great things, and we were such an influence over the rest of the world. And we look at it today and we say, oh man, I pray we're not an influence over the rest of the world now. But do you really think if God was done, He could have taken this out a long time ago, and He hasn't? He's definitely, by His grace, removed the influence it once had. But you know what? It's always going to be, the the community is only going to be semblant, in essence, of the temperature of the church. And the church has just become lackadaisical and a sleeping giant. But here's where it starts, beloved. It starts with grabbing a hold of the promises of God and grabbing a hold of them and knowing that nothing is going to get in the way of God fulfilling His Word. Heaven and earth will pass away, but God's Word will remain. Even when all of these great things that we can do here that we can't do once we get to heaven, like evangelize, heal, I mean pray for, intercede, all of those things that we seem that are so powerful here, they'll be unnecessary when we stand before God. They'll be unnecessary. Oh, but friends, even prophecies will fail, it tells us. Tongues they will cease. Man, but his word never ends. That's just the end of it. By the way, also, his loving kindness never ends either. There's mercy. And the reason I say that is, beloved, today, you're looking at a brand new you. It's our first Wednesday. And you're approaching a time where, now again, on the other side of it, you know that there are the promises in his word, but has the Lord ever promised you something personally? And said, Jenny, this, Kata, this, you know, Jen, this, David, this, Mary, this. And you think, well, maybe, maybe I didn't hear him right. But when you heard it the first time, you were buzzing. And you were buzzing because you knew it was him. And you know what? There's that fatal cubit because somewhere in this part of you, if, if, that were, if you were someone else, you would tell them, remember Abraham, right? Dang it. Abraham Had to wait for a kid for a quarter of a century? Abraham? And you know what? If God were to wait three days, or a couple days like he does with Lazarus, it still seems like forever. But, if he promised you, the one who promised you, this is what scripture says, is faithful, and he will do it. Still struggling with that sin and you think, man, I'm going to have it forever? No, you won't. Still dealing with the fact that you're not getting it all? It won't be like that forever. And I'm just here to remind you tonight that the Lord has made promises to every one of us. Precious promises, by the way. I challenge you to read the Peter letters precious promises that we lay hold of, by the way, that transform the way that we behave because of those promises because we've left everything to lay hold of them. And as we go to prayer, let me prom- let me give you the simplest promise. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Not might be, could be, God, I'll take a vote later. It doesn't matter if all the forces of hell stand against it. This is not a diploma, this is not a um, democracy when God's, when God's in control. He's not going to let all the demons vote and see if that's going to work out. When God makes a decision, it's a done deal. And you're a done deal. Have you said yes to the gift of Jesus, his death at the cross and his resurrection? If he has, if you have, sorry, then I can tell you this. Then God has begun a work that he will be faithful to complete. And you'd say, but I've made such mistakes let me remind you, God knew those mistakes when he saved you. None of them surprise him. They're not setbacks or frustrations from God. Strangely enough, he's going to work not some things to your benefit. How many things does he promise to work? All things. And all means all. So, man, you feel less pure, get back to the Lord and let him remind you. Whoever is in Christ is a new creation, is right now, new creation. And that promise to God is as fresh today as the first time he ever told you. I just want to pray right now for you and for me that our hearts will be ready to hear again. Because there are times where God's going to say, I'll wait for you to, to settle down and then let him speak those promises again to you. Will you pray with me? Lord, I thank you so much for your beautiful, beautiful scripture. I thank you for what you've done here today. And and I know, Lord, that you are so good and so faithful. You're faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, which means all unrighteousness. You are faithful, Lord, to, to never forsake us or leave us. You're faithful to present us before you, holy and blameless, without reproach. What an amazing God you are. And so God, I just pray right now for my brothers and sisters in here and myself. Lord, if there be any compromise, if there be anything that's happening in our hearts well, we knew that you put a promise on our life that, that that caused us to, to be fired up and, and to be driven and, and with expectation and hope, but somehow time and, and maybe even circumstances have come into our lives and now we're just kind of looking and going, I don't know. I, I don't know if I heard him right. Lord, put our hearts and our ears at that right place where we could hear that promise again and embrace it, and not to wait for you, but to wait on you. Because clearly, the route you may choose to take to accomplish that may be very much different than the one we would choose, but that doesn't mean that that you're not going to do it. Oddly enough, it means you are. So I pray for that fresh hope, that fresh encouragement. Lord, some of us have watched amazing miracles. We've watched people we love around us give their lives to you. And, and, and sometimes we've even thought, how could that happen? And yet you've done it. For some of us, we've watched you take us out of situations, God, that were so, so overwhelming, Lord, that we, that we look back and just can, all we can do is claim you in it. And now we look to the future, Lord, and I pray that we would look to the future with greater hope than we ever have. With greater expectation of things that you would do to and through us as you continue that work you've begun in us. I thank you for putting us in this fellowship and giving us an opportunity to enjoy each other, to grow with each other, to see you manifest gifts that we can serve each other. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would keep us faithful. Keep us in you, Lord. And in that now, Lord, I just pray for every believer in here, Lord, that you just ignite us afresh and anew. Knowing, Lord, that you love those people out there so desperately that you would send your Son to die on the cross for them and raise again. And give us that trust, Lord, that, that if we preach your gospel, people will get saved. And if we testify of you, Lord, and we are witness of you, and we, then, then you would truly bring salvation. And so, Lord, we pray that make us ministers of your gospel, trusting your Holy Spirit still convicts, and in that, if there be any or many who have yet to say yes to Jesus tonight, and you know tonight that you've been battling, you've been fighting, but tonight the Lord's saying, "Look, it just come to me. I'll give you rest. Surrender to me and I'll give you life. Trust in me, and I'll save you for eternally." And if that's you, I just want to pray this prayer and I ask you to listen. And if you agree, I ask you to give a resounding, confident amen at the end. And what you're saying is, I agree. Let those words be my words. Let that prayer be my prayer. And here it is. God, I'm a sinner. And that sin makes me guilty before you. But I believe you sent Jesus to die on the cross for me. So that all my penalty could be paid. That he died for me and rose again just like you promised for my sin and now offers me new life. So I say yes to Jesus, confessing Him as my Lord and as my Savior. And I say, here I am. I'm yours. Have me. Make me yours completely. I trust you. In Jesus' name. If you agree, I ask you to say, Amen.